Hey there, Ange McCormack with you, filling in for Dave Marchese on the Hack Podcast today. Coming up on this episode, young people are telling us they're quitting their uni degrees because it's just too expensive to be a student right now. I reckon when two-minute noodles are looking like they'll break the budget, you know things are pretty bad. So we'll check in with students in a moment. Plus, we've been talking a lot about the government's climate change bill recently. Very soon on this episode, we'll talk to Chris Bowen. He's the Minister in Charge of Energy and Climate Change. And later on, we're going to get into the issues that elite athletes are having with mental health. There's so much pressure being at the top of your game and performing really well. So do we support our sporting heroes enough off the field? You'll hear from two AFL stars about that issue. Those stories are coming up on the Hack Podcast. Hack! Everyone recognises that the global transition to net zero will take time. Equally, we understand there is no time to waste. On Triple J. Sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but for some of you, your electricity bills are likely going to get even more expensive this year. Today, the energy regulator released a draft determination on energy prices, and if you're in southeast Queensland, South Australia or New South Wales, your bills could be going up by 20% from July. In Victoria, they could be even worse, going up by 30%. And while 20 or 30% sounds like a lot, the regulator says it actually could have been much worse if the government hadn't stepped in last year about this. In a moment, we'll speak to Climate Change and Energy Minister Chris Bowen about this, and we'll hear about Labor's climate change policy. First, though, here's Shalila Medora to explain today's news. Before the federal election in May last year, Labor promised to lower your power bills. It will see electricity prices fall from the current level by $275 for households by 2025. But October's budget had some super scary forecasts. It predicts electricity prices to rise by 30% next year and gas to go up by more than 50%. So the government decided to intervene in the market to slow those skyrocketing increases. We would be prepared to look at measures uh, that are beyond what governments have normally considered uh, because of the extraordinary circumstances which we're seeing. They capped the price of coal and gas, a measure the coalition strongly opposed. You've got a Prime Minister who has his economic oil plates on. He doesn't know which way to jump and it's Australian families who are going to pay the price for that. Today, the energy regulator has released its draft pricing plan. What is a default market price? Head of the regulator, Claire Savage, explains. We essentially cap the price that retailers can charge those customers, but it's also used as a reference price. So if you're in the market shopping around looking for a good energy deal, your offer will be compared to the default market offer. According to the draft plan, if you're in South Australia, New South Wales or Southern Queensland, your bill could go up by 22%. Small business owners could see a 25% increase. And if you're in Victoria, you could see a 30% price hike. So we've had very high coal and gas prices, partly due by the uh, war in Ukraine, recovery from the COVID pandemic. We've also seen quite significant outages from coal-fired power stations and cold starts to winter last year. Those very high wholesale prices have followed through to that decision today. 
But Claire Savage says things could have been much worse if the government hadn't stepped in. If things had stayed as they were then, prices could have risen by 40 to 50% when we made this announcement today. The interventions in the coal and gas market have actually reduced price expectations for this coming year. The energy regulator will make its final decision on pricing in May before the new prices come into play on July 1. Hack on Triple J. Shalila Madora with that explanation there. Look, let's talk to the minister in charge of all this. Chris Bowen is the Minister for Climate Change and Energy. Minister Bowen, thanks for speaking with me. I believe it's the first time we've had you on since um, you've been in government on Triple J. Yeah, it would be. Yeah, it's been a while. I'm yeah. happy to come on. Yeah, no worries. A- absolutely. Minister, we'll start with today's news. Electricity prices are set to go up again. Young people listening right now can barely get by as it is. How will you help young people cope with even more expensive bills? Yeah, so I guess two things. Firstly, as uh, Shalala mentioned in that report, obviously in December we had to step in. and It's not something we did you know, lightly or for fun, we stepped in and capped coal and gas prices because that's what's leading to the energy price spikes, not only here but around the world. And as bad as these increases are today and they're big increases, they would have had a five in front of them if we hadn't done that. We would have been talking about increases around 50%. Then in addition as well, we announced that we'll do rebates. Now, they're still being negotiated through with the states, so they will be to take directly the pressure off. We recognise that capping the coal and gas prices gets us so far, but to those who need the most support, and many young people will be in this category, we'll do rebates direct to reduced power bills uh, and they'll be in the budget, so there's more relief coming as well. Right. Uh, what, what does that relief look like exactly for young people? Well, you say rebates, but how? I mean, this is a couple of hundred dollars every bill that they're looking at. How, how much relief are we yeah, going to well, see it's still being it's still being negotiated through with the states because what we said was there's some various state schemes. We want to see us work with the states so that the relief is, you know, it's it, so we're not doubling up or repeating, we're actually getting in- increased relief. We want to see additional relief to people. So hence that takes a little while because you've got, uh, you know, six states and two territories to work it through with. Um, it'll be substantial. You know, it's a substantial uh, package of relief coming through to bills. Um, but in terms of the exact design, it'll change from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. That's why that's why Jim Chalmers is negotiating through with each state treasurer. But clearly, clearly it's sort of direct relief to actually make the bill lower. Uh, via rebates. Mm. Something that, that's not going up, Minister, is welfare payments at the moment. Job, job seeker and youth allowance are still the same. Is your government looking at increasing those payments? Is that something we might see in the budget as well? Well, whether it's in the budget or not, uh, we do have a process to look at that. We do have a, a committee looking at all the payments and you know, we, a Labor government will review every payment at every opportunity, We're not here to pretend that it's easy or automatic because it isn't, but we also have a process, again, led by Jim Chalmers and, in this case, Amanda Rishworth, the Social Services Minister, and others uh, looking through uh, the various options available to us, recognising that, yep, this, this is an issue that's been around for a long time and, you know, a lot of the payments haven't moved, particularly uh, JobSeeker um, haven't moved. Uh, so, yes, there is there are... 
there is a process underway there. Well, you know, when JobSeeker did move once in a very recent memory, it was during COVID, it was an emergency yes, and the government was able to, to act quickly. There is a precedent for acting quickly. We know that that can happen if there's an emergency. And I guess for my listeners now who are struggling to go to the shops today and buy something for dinner, it feels like an emergency. Um, I, I guess my question is just when will that sort of sense of urgencies uh, kick in for uh, things like youth allowance payments, for example, what we're talking about um, students and cost of living today as well. Hmm. Well, I guess when you talk about sense of urgency, that's what we are doing in terms of, again, on a related matter, you know, the, the, the intervention we did in December, um, you know, some people say, oh, I should have taken longer to work that through. That was that was really necessary uh, to provide that relief. We would have been seeing energy price rises of 50%, 5-0%. Um, that's not something we did lightly and it's not something uh, that we hmm. did you know, slowly. Uh, we, we did it when it needed to be done while doing it carefully. You know, there's that balance to be struck because you can, if you get these things wrong, the implications are, are very significant. So I guess that, that sense of urgency is there. Uh, but again, I'm not here to pretend to you that, you know, everything can be dealt with immediately. Um, I don't want to be too political on the show, but, you know, I've been out of office for 10 years and you don't fix 10 years' worth of problems in 10 months as much as we'd sure. like to. You're listening to Hack on Triple J. I'm Ange McCormack speaking to Climate Change and Energy Minister Chris Bowen. Minister, I also want to ask about your climate change policy, this safeguard mechanism that you're hoping to push through very soon. For people listening, this is a policy that basically will mean the emissions from Australia's largest polluters will be reduced. But in the Senate, you need the Greens to support this bill. How are those negotiations going? Will you get this passed soon? So, look, this is really important, Ange. Um, this is the equivalent of taking 205 million tonnes, or it is taking 205 million tonnes of carbon out of the air by 2030. That's the equivalent of two-thirds of the cars on Australia's roads. So this is a big deal. Now, I'm used to this, you know, really, when you're doing a big reform like this, I'm, uh, I'd be very surprised if everybody came out on both sides, right and left, and said, sure, oh, geez, it's politics. Got yeah. all this right. You know, <laughs> yeah. This is all perfect. We'll just, that, that world doesn't happen. Now, we have dis disagreements with the Greens, but we also have areas of commonality where we can work together. This is one where I've said, well, let's work together. Um, I'm not, you know, obviously I can't go into with you exactly what are uh, being discussed in negotiations, but, you know, the negotiations are continuing and in good faith. I, I, to answer your question, will we get it through? I just don't believe, I can't conceive that the parliament that was elected last May, which is a progressive parliament, um, would knock back the opportunity to reduce emissions by 205 million tonnes because some people would say, oh, we want it done differently. Um, I'm, I'm not asking people to agree with me about exactly the way we're doing everything, but I am asking people to come together and say, right, this has to happen. You know, these are the 215 biggest emitters in the country, we're not going to get emissions down unless they start getting emissions down. We're requiring 4.9% a year emissions reduction. From my point of view, that means you need to allow some flexibility. But I understand people have views about that. Yeah, and, and but ultimately... But ultimately, if it doesn't pass, then nothing changes and emissions will keep going up. Well, I suppose the sticking point that we all know here is that the Greens, uh, you know, they're basically um, against this idea because you aren't committing to banning new oil or gas projects. And climate scientists agree with that being a priority as well. They should. They say we shouldn't open new coal or gas projects. I think a lot of my listeners right now will think uh, agree with that, that sentiment and they've listened to the science for a long time. Um, I guess, you know, why aren't you banning new fossil fuel projects as part of this policy? I, I think a lot of my listeners might not understand the thinking behind that. Yeah, I understand. And look, I'd say two things. Firstly, this is a policy that's designed to get emissions down from everyone big, old, new, 
fossil fuels in that industry. I mean, this doesn't. This isn't just about coal and gas. This is about aluminium. It's about steel making. It's about fertilisers. It's about the two airlines, right? So, uh, and it's about old and new. Uh, it's about facilities that have been there a long time and facilities that might be new. And so, this isn't the mechanism to sort of just just single out one particular area or one particular element. Secondly, if this doesn't pass, as I said, there'll be no constraint on on emissions from anyone, old or new. The other point is, and that just on electricity, um, I understand how, how urgently we need to move to renewables. I absolutely do, and we are. So renewable energy is about a third of our energy mix at the moment. We'll get it up to 82% by 2030. That's 82% in 82 months. That's a big job. That's a huge lift, right? That's a massive task which we're undertaking to get more renewables into the system. But it still means still means that 18% will be fossil fuels by 2030. Um, now that means then you've got to you've got to make sure you've got supply because we can't have a light right. out. And so therefore it would be irresponsible to say right we're not having any you know any of this type or any of that type new. As much as and as fast as we are transitioning to renewables, and increasingly the coal-fired power stations will close down and come out of the system. That means you've really only got nuclear or gas. We're anti-nuclear. I don't think nuclear steps yeah, backs up, and that means you need you need to make sure that your gas supply is reliable. I, I can see the the thinking behind that, but what about some of the other other solutions that we're talking about, like a climate trigger, something that would make the government consider the climate impact before green lighting projects? Isn't that a reasonable idea? Well, again, Tanya Plibersek uh, is working through reforms to the environmental. Uh, laws and there's been a review which we've accepted, which mm. basically says we need a lot more transparency and it needs to work a lot better. Um, and you know, she, Tanya is a very assiduous um, environment minister. I mean, she's knocked back one coal mine. Yes, she's looked at a, a small expansion of gas and said that's tax up. So um, I don't think that's the answer. And again, what I'm negotiating is the safeguards reform. I'm not negotiating you know, other reforms. I'm negotiating with Adam Bant and the Greens and you know, the Senate crossbench. Uh, the safeguard reforms, and they're the levers that I have at my disposal, and that's what I'll work with them on. And as I said, you know, I'm quite confident we'll get it through because it just is inconceivable to me that the parliament would just say, "Yeah, no, nah, we're not doing that." You know, this is our, this is the one chance we've had to get emissions down out of big industry. If we don't take it. Uh, I think that would be letting the Australian people down. Well, we'll be really interested to follow that and uh, see what happens with those negotiation negotiations. Chris Bowen, thanks so much for joining me today on Triple J. Thanks, thanks for having me on. Come on I'll come on again soon sometime. <laughs> thanks, Chris. Thanks, Minister. Uh, Chris Bowen, the Minister for Climate Change and Energy. Time to keep moving, though. Hack. I've been forced to drop out of university because I simply can't afford to keep studying while keeping up with the rising cost of living. On Triple J. If you're a uni student, it's kind of crunch time. O-week parties are over, you've actually got heaps of study to do, and the census date where you can drop out or defer your course without paying is coming up. Meanwhile, of course, the price of everything's going up. We just heard about electricity prices, but there's also a rental crisis. If you're a student and wondering how you'll be able to study full-time and pay the bills, you're not the only one. We've been hearing more and more that students are having to choose between their education or having something to eat or put a roof over their heads. Have you been thinking of dropping out because studying is too expensive? Text me 0439 757555 or call in 1300 055536. Here's what some students at a uni food bank in Sydney had to say today. I have two jobs. I work at a cafe and also a bar at night. I come to uni three days a week. After my day job, I work at my night job. Got to like find time 
to still balance like my friends, family, and then doing the assignments. The cost of living crisis is real, and, and inflation, as we all know, even the prices of groceries and everything is going up. I'm earning wages for like 20 hours a week, so you know the money's not really pouring in at the moment. It's just constantly in the back of your head, like you feel like maybe I shouldn't go out with my friends today, just to save just for this week. I'd love to move out, but yeah, it's just too expensive at the moment. It's not easy, you know, like to manage work, uni, you got to do everything by yourself, look after your own house, look after your health. So yeah, it's, it's a bit challenging. Hack on Triple J. Students there from UTS in Sydney. On Hack's Instagram today, someone said, doing a placement basically means choosing between education and the roof over my head. Someone else says, uh, I, I'm a social work student on 15 weeks of unpaid placement. How am I meant to survive? And someone else says at the moment they have to sleep. They have to have sleep for dinner to get by. Call me if you want to talk about this, one 36 Let's talk with Ben Yates, though. He's the president of the ANU Student Association. Ben, what's it like out there? What are you hearing from students at the moment? Hey there. Yeah, look, I think what I'm hearing from students is that students effectively can't afford to study properly. Um, we're in a situation where students' wages aren't keeping up with inflation, where cost of living is going up, and particularly here in Canberra, we're seeing that the cost of housing is going up astronomically, including the on-campus accommodation as well. And it just leads to a situation where students have to be working near full-time sometimes just to be able to make ends meet. Um, and what that comes down to is just a lack of government support and a lack of university support. Mm. And how do you think the stress of all of this is impacting students' work, which is why, you know, students go to uni in the first places to study and work. I mean, you can't really do your best assignments or study the best when you're hungry or stressed about your next meal, right? Oh, absolutely. And and I hear it all the time. It's just that students can't focus on their studies, can't focus on, you know, enjoying what should be a really exciting time in their lives because they're stressed about making the next rent paycheck, making the next rent check, making, you know, making enough money to eat um, and, you know, being hit by a bill, being hit by car repairs, having to pay a housing deposit can just cause immense stress. Um, you know, here at the ANU Student Association, we provide emergency grants. We frequently see people coming in in huge levels of distress because they don't know how they're going to pay their rent that week um, or they haven't eaten that day. Um, and it's something we're seeing increasingly more and more. You're listening to Hack on Triple J. I'm Ange McCormack filling in for Dave Marchese. We're talking about the cost of living crisis impacting students, forcing them to quit their degrees and do full-time work instead. Uh, I'm speaking with Ben Yates from the ANU. Uh, ben, you mentioned before about there being um, a need for government or um, university level change. What, what kind of change do you, are you calling for? What do you think would improve this situation from a, a government level first off? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, on the government level, I think we see that students' wages aren't keeping up with inflation, with inflation skyrocketing. We need the minimum wage, we need award wages to keep up. I think also that we just have an absolute housing crisis, right? And I think in Canberra, we've got the most expensive rents in the country, apparently. Um, and, you know, students are regularly paying, you know, hundreds and hundreds of dollars every week. Um, and that's just not feasible. We need to be, we need to be talking about um, solutions like rent freezes and rent caps and more public housing. Um, I think the last thing on the government side is youth allowance is far too low. And for a lot of 18 to 22-year-olds, their eligibility for youth allowance is assessed on their parents' income. Mm. When students are going out to moving interstate for a lot of ANU students, um, their, their parents can't afford to support them 
um, interstate and, you know, the assessment on their parents' income is just meaningless and, you know, they're not guaranteed their parents' support when they're 21, 22 years old. Uh, so we need more youth allowance, more ab study um, and we need the age of independence to be lower so students can access it earlier. And, and what do you think about on the uni level side? Obviously, universities know that their students are struggling. What could they be doing to ease that pressure? I mean, here at ANU, a majority of students live on campus in their first year of undergrad, and we've seen the price of accommodation on campus um, increase every year. The university sold off its housing portfolio to a private investment firm, and that means that now every single year the tariffs in those halls increase above CPI, so they're becoming less and less affordable above inflation every year. And we have self-catered accommodation, no food provided, that's now getting close to $400 a week, about $370 a week, um, which for effectively a bedroom with a shared bathroom um, is pretty astonishing. Mm. Uh, and, you know, 370 a week, if you're working minimum wage, that's a lot of hours and that's a lot of hours that you're not studying and that just contributes to the stress that you referred to. Yeah, it's really tough out there, pretty grim scenes on uni campuses. Well, Ben Yates, thanks so much for speaking to me about that issue. Pleasure. Thanks for chatting. That's Ben Yates there, the ANU Student Association President. Daniel, you say, I really want to go to uni, but I can't afford to throw away my full-time job to study. Hacked. They are so heavily scrutinised, every single thing they do. They turn up to work, and if they don't have a good day, everyone yells at them. On Triple J. Do you reckon we give enough support to our elite athletes, especially when they're young? Some of them are just kids or teenagers, and we expect a lot of them. We want them to be at the top of their game, be role models, win us grand finals and gold medals. And when they don't, or they do something wrong, the backlash can be pretty brutal. Some new research has been looking at this. They say there's a gap in looking into the mental health of elite athletes, and more needs to be done to help them so they can be healthier both on and off the field. Let's look into this. Kimberly Price has this story. You do it your whole life, essentially, until you make the professional level, and then that can be taken away from you at such a young age. Brandon Jack was just 18 years old when he was drafted into the AFL. He was quite late to the field, only picking up a footy around 14 years old. If you are good at the game and if you have talent, it's kind of like that's the only pathway. Like, no one says, oh, you're great at this, maybe you should just play for fun. Brandon was part of the Sydney Swans Academy as a teenager, on the right path for drafting into the Football League. While he had a lot of professional mental health support available, he says there wasn't much incentive to use it. You know, the pressure does start building. And I think back to who I was at 15, 16, even into my early 20s, was a smart kid, but I don't think that translated to kind of emotional maturity. Once drafted, Brandon says there was more support, including in-house psychologist appointments scheduled for players. But the culture around seeking help wasn't there. When I was in there, it was, all right, let's just say whatever we need to say to get out of here. I don't want the other players to think I'm in here talking to the side. You don't want any kind of sign of weakness to be there. And while there is a level of expectation that comes with being a high-profile sports star, Brandon says the pedestal elite athletes are put on by fans, sponsorship deals and the media is enormous. Just because somebody can kick a ball between sticks that are kind of put in the ground, like, they definitely shouldn't be our role models. Since leaving the AFL at the age of 23, Brandon has publicly spoken and written a book on the need for better mental health care for young men. 
and without proper and ongoing mental health support, young players can end up stepping out of line. And because they're in the public eye, it can have massive ramifications. One of the AFL's rising stars has been caught up in a drug scandal. Collingwood's Jack Ginnivan has apologised. The tantrums, the girls, the flashy cars. Bernard Tomic is the bad boy of Australia. One of the tennis. AFL's most high-profile players, Bailey Smith, is facing a suspension. The hearing going on right now on whether a 15-year-old star Russian figure skater will be able to compete after testing positive for a banned substance. At the end of the day, they're just humans. I know a lot of guys who have played football and have done drugs, and I know a lot of people who didn't play football and who have done drugs. This is added scrutiny upon athletes. Research by mental health organisation Origin shows young elite athletes are particularly vulnerable. Associate Professor Simon Rice says after 10 years in the sector, he's found a research blind spot. I think there was an implicit assumption that athletes, elite athletes, are protected from experiencing mental health problems through their status. We know that that's now clearly not the case. Previous studies have centred around grown-ups, with no one really looking into teenage athletes. But new research suggests young elite athletes may be exposed to circumstances that heighten their risk of poor mental health. By sheer virtue of their age, elite athletes are vulnerable to mental health problems because the, the age of elite athletic competition overlaps with the peak onset of mental health problems. His research also shows that boys are often more afraid to speak up and those who play individual sports like tennis and swimming report worse mental health problems. With more awareness around mental health, Simon says that pattern is starting to change and there have been significant steps taken in supporting athletes' mental health but more can be done for young athletes. If we can provide better supports through those years, we think that we'll be able to support athletes. When Brandon looks back on his time as an elite athlete, he believes that if there was greater support and encouragement from senior players to focus on his mental health, things may have panned out differently. I definitely fell off a cliff when I came out. of. I stopped playing professionally when I was 23 and you do pretty much have to focus on football to be the best football you can be. But then when that's done, there's a big hole that exists there. And one type of support that could have made the world of difference is creating positive environments around seeking help. Make services more readily available and encourage people to take them up. Hack on Triple J. Kimberly Price reporting there. And if this is ra- has raised anything for you, help's always available from Lifeline on 13 11 14. Let's talk a bit more about this with Phil Davis. He plays AFL for the GWS Giants in Sydney. Phil, I know this issue is important to you. You've spoken about mental health challenges in elite sport before and you were a teenager when you started playing profession- professionally. Can you describe what that was like, going from being a little school kid to being thrust into the spotlight with all that pressure on you? Yeah, it's just nice to be here. So thank you very much for having me. I think it's a very, it's an interesting um, topic for for multiple reasons. And and the one thing I will say globally is that there's been a significant shift and we'll probably touch on that a Mm. bit bit further on. But I, I, uh, what did I do? I I finished my year 12 exams and within two weeks, I just, I started my career and then had to miss a day of training to go to my like speech day. So I was already (laughs) Special environment before I'd even made it to my speech day for, for year 12. So, um, yeah, it all happens very quickly. And I, I guess, you know, this was all the way back end of 2008, early 2009, when I sort of started my career and 
um, at, at that stage, you know, I was very young and naive and um, I was in Adelaide in a two-team footy town, so football was a, a really big deal. Um, I, I must admit, uh, you know, being a person of, uh, you know, of s- certain privilege, you know, with, with my, the, my parents and the schooling I went to and all these things, I must admit I had a, some level of understanding of what I was getting myself into and my mum being a, a, a doctor, had always told me the importance of psychologists and, mm. and the role that they can play in controlling mental health. So that gave me a distinct advantage. But you know, there have been so many people that get thrust into that um, without that that knowledge and that upbringing, which makes it even more challenging. Um, and then, I guess for me, I was lucky in the sense that like I was I was a high draft pick, which usually comes with a lot of pressure. But for some reason, I sort of got away with a year and a half of not too much pressure, which sort of gave me a a lead time and then throughout my career there have been various challenges I, I left the Crows to start the Giants and that um, produced a whole new level of challenge uh, for me in that space as well. Yeah and I mean for a, an 18 year old or someone even younger a little bit older is there anything that could have prepared you going into that you said it was always going to be a massive challenge and even you had a little bit of an idea but what what could prepare someone for that because it just feels like it's I don't know the pressure of that is is just so immense. Yeah and I, and I think you know the you know, one of the major keys is, is your support network and making sure you've got that in place. And what happens is as soon as you get started, um, you know, you've got the AFL Players Association, which take a, a, a bigger and, and more leading role in, in your mental health space these days, as well as, you know, when you get to a club these days, particularly there are um, uh, personal development managers and sort of welfare managers that help you in that space. But one thing that is vital is those organizations or those people help catch you but there's a level of proactiveness that is really needed and if that's not pushed upon you to be proactive in that space you know it can take a while to catch it if that makes sense so Mm -hmm. I I think it's really really important you know to prepare yourself is that as I think Brandon said before there needs to be open conversations that, that this is a great method just like training physically is important having the the right one, support network around you, but two, a, a mental health plan in terms of what you need to explore to hopefully help put yourself in the best position to handle the rigours, the mental rigours that come with elite sport is really important. And that's yeah. something that you know, needs to continue to grow and grow. That was Phil Davis there. He plays for the Greater Western Sydney Giants. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Hack Podcast. We'll be back with more tomorrow.